Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in to an hour of science with us in the studio with me is Chris KB. Good morning, buddy. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm about to cough, so say Please. something interesting. Uh, well, this is the sound of Shane coughing in the background. Please enjoy that and maybe use it for a ringtone later. <laughs> this is what happens when you, uh, folks, if you take a drink right before, and I don't mean alcoholic, I mean water. No, of Right course before not you go on the air and it goes down the wrong pipe, you get yourself in trouble. Is it? You know, when you, okay, okay, this is not just me, I swear to God. Occasionally that happens just with work with me here, saliva. Yeah. Yep. That is the most embarrassing thing. Yeah. You can't even sit still without choking on your own saliva. No. What kind of a dullard? No. Yeah. And these days people look at you a little bit differently. You exactly. Know. It's like coughing you and know. They, they, you know, it's bring out your dead. They're yeah. all, I know, it's, yeah. it's very I, grim. I have the photosensitive sneezing problem, as oh, people, really? long term really? listeners really? of the show will know. So <laughs> whenever I walk out of a supermarket or something, I sneeze if it's sunny and people look at you like, you filthy animal. <laughs> and you went into the supermarket like that? You touched things. And generally I'm like, yes, and I'm wearing a mask and you want to know what it's like to sneeze in this thing? Yeah. Not fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Anyway, um, we have a big hour of science for you, folks. Uh, we've got some great guests coming in. We're going to be speaking about diabetes. We actually have a diabetes patient in the studio as well, who's sure. also supervising a PhD student. So very exciting to have mm. that um, lived experience yeah, in yeah. the discussion. And we've got an old friend of the show coming back on to talk about frogs, which is Excellent. wild. Because frogs Excellent. are the canary in the coal mine for the world, I think, in Frog many in regards. Frog in the coal mine. Very important. Um, on the line, though, already for us is Gracie, all the way from Texas. Good morning, Gracie, or good afternoon, Good evening, whatever it is there in the U.S. How are you? Yeah, good evening. How are y'all? Uh, we're doing well. Now, we're going to talk about uh, some of the technology from Star Trek. This is part two of uh, what you started. What well, must have been a month ago. Yes. Yeah. So last time we actually talked about technology we have now because of Star Trek or based on Star Trek. So mm. we talked about things like communicators, automatic doors, touch screens, voice activated AI, so those types of things. So today we're going to do part two. So we're actually going to talk about some technologies from Star Trek that aren't quite there yet, uh, uh, but hopefully you're coming soon. So a little bit distant yep. in the future. Um, so we'll talk about some current technology. So uh, universal translators, the first one that we're going to talk mm. about. So of course the characters in Star Trek relied on a really small device that whenever you speak into it, it would translate the words into English. And of course we have, uh, you know, Google Translate and different apps now um, that can do this, but it's not quite up to par exactly what they had in Star Trek yeah. um, and across all various languages um, and, and how quick it was, you know. Yeah, well for us viewers, of course, it was seamless. It was like everyone was speaking English. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. And across all those alien languages, like I can't even imagine, you know, even uh, even our apps that we have right now, they don't necessarily do all of the languages uh, that exist out there right now, too. So yeah. that's, that's how, something how, that I think will come. How frequently did, uh, did the Star Trek crew come across new uh, aliens or new civilizations? Oh, it was pretty common, wasn't it? It was pretty common. So the universal translators basically worked immediately. <laughs> it had to be pretty snappy. Yeah. I, I have been uh, hoping for this, though, for a long time, Gracie, because in high school, 
I was never good at languages. In fact, I still remember, and I quote, the comment from my French teacher in year 10, who in the report to my parents said, I get the impression Shane doesn't take this subject seriously. Did you say it in French at least? He may, he may have been correct. <laughs> but I was just bad at languages, so I've been hoping for this. We need this soon. We really do. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I agree. It would make traveling so much more fun too, I think, right? <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So another one was replicators. Mm. So uh, kind of the parallel to this right now would be 3D printers Yeah. Uh, would be like the closest thing, right? But of course, we still don't have those materials of, you know, creating food, creating, you know, Earl Grey tea, hot, you know, mm-hmm. like Captain Picard always ordered. Mm. Um, we don't have, you know... Uh, we have maybe technology that's up and coming in terms of like Oregon 3D printing. So like human yeah. body 3D printing, like some more like medical applications, but we haven't quite transcended into, uh, you know, food yet. Yeah. So if you're but a big, absolutely. if you want to eat liver, you might be able to order that up. Yes. And, and it has to be human liver. Of yeah. Course. Yeah, or liver <laughs> that's <enough>. right. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure I want to be in that camp, but yeah. 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 But yeah, you, you, yeah, you would think if uh, you would think if you could, 3D print a liver, you might be able to 3D print a apple, you would hope. Maybe yeah, I, kn- I know, right? Yeah, I yeah. know. It seems like that would be so much easier, right? Yeah. I think probably a lot of what's holding this up to you is probably the ethics behind yeah. these, these kinds of technologies as well, right? So um, another one that we could talk about is tractor beams. Oh, yeah? So tractor beams, if you, if you aren't super familiar with the show, basically there were these high-powered tractor beams in Star Trek. So basically it would kind of come out of the ship um, and it would be used to like tow other ships um, or push them out of out of the way in dangerous situations. So um, obviously we don't have anything like this yet, but we do actually have optical tweezers, which yeah. you may be able to talk about a lot better than me, of course. Um, but from what I understand, they basically use laser beams of light and they can hold and move microscopic objects. Um, it looks like they're still mostly used to either like remove bacteria or sort cells. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we had some of those in my old laboratory at the University of Melbourne. We had the optical tweezers set up there and, and they're wild. You're essentially using the, the pressure that light can exert uh, to, uh, you know, hold a particle um, in place or move a particle around or steer it around. It's, it's, it's not a simple setup, I will say, but it's pretty, it's pretty wild stuff. And I remember when I was using those, uh, many, many years ago now, I always, you know, I thought this is not quite what they had on the USS Enterprise, but <laughs> it's, hmm. it's something. And it was pretty cool technology. Yeah. 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 That's really cool. Yeah. Another one we could talk about is warp drive. So warp drive, if you aren't familiar with the show, is basically the ability of the spaceship to travel faster than the speed of light. Um, And so that that has kind of been considered impossible for a lot of years, for many years. Uh, But recent work has suggested ways we might be able to circumvent that light speed barrier. Um, But it's still kind of up in the air. Um, There is one person uh, at the University of Houston, actually, a Texas professor, um, that has speculated that he may be able to make kind of a little baby step towards warp drive by using ethylene glycol, which is commonly found in antifreeze. Um, and honestly, his further description of that was completely over my head. Um, but we'll see how it plays out. We'll see how it plays out. Is so. that if he drinks it? Like if he drinks it, he thinks he's going faster than the speed of light? That, that's kind of where that sits for me. Maybe, maybe, who knows? <laughs> I was thinking, going the speed of light, I mean, I, I get why that's challenging in terms of theoretical physics, but I'm like, 
I'd be happy to go half that speed. <laughs> I'd be that'd be pretty good, right? It's yeah, like you, yeah. But lower the bar a bit. Well, I think you know it's it's an interesting conceptual idea though because if we can not do that, if that that is a physical parameter, which it mm. seems to be in the universe in general, um, it means that within the human race's your lifetime as a, as a species, the majority of the universe is out of range to us. Yeah. And, and yeah. for every other organism that may have Correct. existed somewhere in the universe as well. So we could be in this situation where we're kind of just all cut off from each other, which would, you know, is a little sad. It is a bit sad, isn't it? Yeah, that we, you know, there might be other civilizations and we just... It feels a bit disappointing. Yeah, we're kind of in our little corner and, yeah. and if there's nothing really close to us, we're, you know, well, there it is folks sorry <laughs> yeah, all the that more- also reminds me yeah yeah that also reminds me of you know how everyone thought flight at the beginning was impossible and then you know breaking the sound barrier mm. as well um so but also in the show in star trek warp drive wasn't actually invented until the year 2063 yeah so we're gonna be the uh, time according to their fictional yeah according to okay. their fictional timeline yeah. we we aren't behind yet I will say though, you know, whenever people talk about that, I always refer them back to Back to the Future, and I do not have my hoverboard, and we are miles behind on that one. So, you know, they have a lot yeah, of faith. That's true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that would, could be a whole other episode, actually. <laughs> what didn't come that. about from Back to the Future? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Another one is uh, transporters. Oh yeah. So. Uh, and if you're not familiar with the show, again, this would be like somebody uh, like a human person or multiple humans would like step into what's called the transporter room. And then their electrons would basically be beamed to a different location. And so it's basically this way of like teleportation, essentially. Mm. Um, not just their electrons, hopefully their protons and neutrons, yeah. neutrons as well. Huh? Oh, yeah. Hopefully <laughs> <laughs> I the whole lot. I arrived as plasma. It was disappointing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what happened to me? Uh, you lost all your protons and neutrons. You're That's negative now. I lost weight. Very negative. <laughs> yes. So this is also another thing that you could uh, talk uh, much better about than I can. But uh, the research in 2019 was that scientists actually confirmed that information could be passed between photons on computer chips. And so that was a really important step in improving quantum computing. Mm. Um, but we're not quite, obviously, at the level of teleportation. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. And they're definitely, you know, this is like I remember the, the film The Fly. It's probably before your time, Gracie, but I think Chris KP will remember it. It didn't turn out well for Jeff yeah, Goldblum. Uh, yeah, and that was all, it's also a salient lesson in, uh, in uh, sterile technique. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it really yes. Another one is uh, Holodecks. So if you aren't familiar with the show, this was basically like a virtual reality room. So our virtual reality now is still really dependent on, you know, wearing the headsets or a particular suit. Um, And we don't really get like that tactile feedback uh, in a room. It's really more like the visual feedback. So I think we're we're getting closer eventually. But NASA actually has a virtual reality lab where astronauts can prepare for spacewalks. And I think that's probably the most advanced thing currently we have to date, at least that I know of. Yeah, I think theirs is called hybrid virtual reality, where they 3D print objects so that when they see them, they they can also physically touch the objects and the whole system is all connected so that they can um, have a tactile experience as well as being in a virtual environment. Yeah, yep. that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. And then the last one I'll talk about uh, is, of course, going to be the intraocular implants, which is mm-hmm. what you what you asked me to talk about on Twitter. So now I had to add it. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, so, you know. yeah. In, 
intraocular lens implants. So basically, Jordi's visor on the show allowed him to see um, whenever he actually lost his vision. And so now we actually have intraocular lens implants. And so these are basically um, lenses, kind of like in your eye, but they're made out of acrylic uh, materials. And they basically help you focus the light and the imaging. Um, and this is actually really common surgery. I didn't realize that. Mm. It's, it's used to correct a lot of vision problems. Yeah. And we're starting, I mean, the Bionic Eye mm. projects around the world are starting to do some amazing things as well. So, you know, hopefully there'll be opportunities there, especially for people who, uh, you know, have one of the many degenerative eye diseases that, you know, want to have their sight restored will will be able to access that technology in, in the near future. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, great so stuff, Gracie. Yeah, great stuff. Yeah, and you. Um, it, you know, we just we just have to weigh the decade. Some of these things will maybe be coming our way. I think a few. I'm, I'm not counting on the transporter or the warp drive. <laughs> I know too much physics, <laughs> uh, but some of the others are uh, yeah, definitely on the way. So cool stuff. In the newest Star Trek show, though, they have these really cool sort of new interactive panels that uh, sort of these 3D screens, wild stuff. That's what I want. I want them in my home. Get rid of my computer screen. I want everything kind of cool looking yeah, so. <laughs> wow okay. yeah yeah I want the kind where like you know you see people like touching the 3D the, thing in front of you thing. yes, yes totally. and, they, and they could like move it around with their yeah. hands and things yeah. like that that's what I want yeah yeah like in Minority Report I yeah. think they had that yes yeah, yeah cool yes. stuff yeah. Gracie great having you online again thanks so much for chatting to us I uh, hope everything's well over there in Texas and we will chat to you again in a few weeks yes sounds good thanks for having me cool bye everybody bye Folks, we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in just a moment with our first two guests. We'll be talking about uh, type 1 diabetes in particular, as opposed to type 2. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3 Triple R. In the studio with us now is Jasmine Ship. Jasmine's a PhD candidate, although she, she has submitted, so I might just call her Dr. Jasmine today, um, out at Deakin University and the University of Copenhagen. And additionally in the show, we have Renza Shabilia. Pretty sure I got that right, Renza. You did. Uh, Director of Community Building and Communi Communications at Global and part of the Global Access Team at JDRF, which we're going to get you to describe to us in a moment. But <laughs> Jasmine, first of all, with you. Now, you were part of the 2020 last year. You came back. Yeah, that's a great experience. I had to come back. Yeah, that's great. Now, I'm just going to grab you to pull that microphone a little bit closer. That's great. Um, now, you had one minute last time. We're going to give you like 10 or 12 this time, Judy. <laughs> what a luxury. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We've got plenty of time. Uh, so, type 1 diabetes, just for those who aren't fully across the distinction between type 1 and type 2, how are they distinguished? So type 1 diabetes occurs when there's an organ called the pancreas that sits mm -hmm. just behind your stomach yep. and it stops producing um, enzymes correctly such as insulin. Yep. We need insulin to keep our glucose levels in a safe range. Okay. So people of type 1 diabetes need to inject insulin every day to make mm -hmm. sure that they're staying within those safe ranges of glucose levels. Yep. And people of type 2 diabetes, the insulin might not be working as well. So they may be able to manage uh, their, in their glucose levels with diet or exercise or they may need to go into insulin eventually as well. Right. And and is, correct me if I'm wrong, 
type one you're born with, or you get very early on in? I can see the, Renza shaking the, Yeah, how the, how the two work? Like, why, why do I end up with type one versus type two? Renza, do you want to answer that one? I can Sorry. see you shaking your head. <laughs> well, type one diabetes is an autoimmune condition. Right. You're yep. not born with it. Okay. Um, so I think that's really important. And so um, I think that's really important because people do think of it as a childhood disease yeah, or something yeah, that only yeah, happens yeah. in children. Yeah. Actually, it's a condition that can be diagnosed at any, any point, age. Right. I heard of somebody the other day who was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in their 80s. Wow. So, um, yes. It's good that they're on top of their health. It is, like yes. To be, it's hard yes. to get, get yes. good care at that age, right, to get things diagnosed. It I mean, wasn't an easy diagnosis, yeah. which we often hear in adults with type 1, because yeah. there's an assumption, you're of this age, it must be that. Right. So, yep. Yeah. Yep. And type 2 is similar, like it can happen any time. It can, yeah. Yeah. and we're seeing it now being diagnosed in younger and younger people and children. Right. Um, and that's a whole different episode. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. but again, it comes to we really need to stop making assumptions in healthcare, yep. Yep. Um, and we really need our clinicians to be really mindful and understand that there is a changing face of diabetes, yeah. all types of diabetes, uh, and to be very curious and, and ask the right questions so that people are getting the right diagnosis and the right treatment. Yeah. So... Speaking of treatment, Jasmine, like this is what you've been sort of looking into a lot of the, the ways in which we go about this. And one of the things, because my father has diabetes, mm-hmm. and I see him pricking his finger 25 times a day to work out his, his glucose levels. And then depending on the, that outcome, he then reacts accordingly with insulin injections. Yeah. Is, is that the current standard of care? Is that, is that what we do? It is the current standard of care for many Australians, and a lot of people are managing with uh, finger pricks yep. and injections, but you can also get technology that can measure your glucose levels continuously. Right. So you can get an Im- a little implant in your arm that's getting those glucose levels readings every five minutes, and right. you can get an insulin pump that's a little has a little cartridge inside it and a tubing pump that goes into your body, and you can give yourself insulin that way. But yeah. what my PhD looked at was that so there's this device that can measure your glucose levels, and there's a device that can give you insulin, but mm-hmm. those two weren't talking to each other. And right. it was a very clever people with type one who figured out how to get those. Two to talk, a woman named uh, Dana Lewis, okay. oh, sorry, Dana Lewis in Dana the Lewis. States, she figured it out for the first time and found out how to make those two devices talk to each other. Yeah, so that's that's fascinating to me because one of the things that I observed with my father is, you know, he'll feel like crap right before he needs to have an insulin injection, but he'll often feel more like crap after he's had it. And I think it's that sort of that switching between way too low and way too high and then hoping the body will even things out in the middle. Is that is that what's sort of going on there? Like, yeah, homeostasis, but um, mm. it's really tricky to get that balance right, mm. going too low or too high, and I think that that would be something that Renz has had some experience of, that the feeling feeling crap. Do you want to talk about what that feels like for you? Yeah. Yes. So you have type 1 diabetes. I do. Yeah. I've just celebrated my 25th anniversary, so 25 <laughs> oh years ago. And, hey, it is worth celebrating. I would yeah. have liked a chicken tape parade. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, absolutely, those varying glucose levels can make you feel really right. terrible. Um, it is – we call it a glucose roller. Coaster. So yep. the aim wherever possible is to try to limit that. And thankfully, uh, this technology is the first thing that I've had access to that's really worked. Yeah. So, so that was my question. I, I understand that if you're so, – so my dad's the same as yours, has, has mm. the regular finger prick, et cetera, thing. So if that's the situation you're working with, why aren't the, the, regular, the, the, the monitoring things more common? Well, uh, <laughs> sorry, is that a bad question? No, it's, it's an awesome question. So, let's talk about the situation here in Australia. If you have type one diabetes, yep. any age group with type one diabetes, you have funded 
access to CGM technologies. So okay. CGM is continuous glucose monitoring. Right. Um, and so everybody with type 1 diabetes has access through the NDSS, the National Diabetes Services Scheme. Okay. If you're under 21, it's actually free at the point of collection at the okay. pharmacy. Wow. Nice. Um, and if you're over that, it, it works out to about $400 a year that you're paying, okay. um, which is a huge improvement because this only happened last year. Yeah. And before that, it could be really? up to $4,000. Yeah. And, in, and in the US, if you don't have insurance, it's completely prohibitive. Yes. So, yeah. we, we, you know, so there's some there's some good news there. Yes. Yep. But if you have type 2 diabetes, and right. I believe that's ah. yep. Um, yep. what yep. your dads both have, um, unfortunately, that's not subsidised at right. this point in time. So they're um, finger pricking, they're blood glucose yep. monitoring uh, devices. And if they're on insulin, they're um, uh, insulin pens or their syringes, yep. absolutely subsidised. Yep. But sadly, at this point in time, not CGM. So right. that's why... It's mm. not um, to answer your question. Yeah, no, that's, that's very it's sad yeah. but rational. And, and, and coming so coming back to this sort of these monitoring devices and and then a connected system to produce insulin. Does that does that mean, Jasmine, that uh, essentially there's sort of smaller increments of smaller amounts of glucose being continually or not continually, but you know, distributed throughout the day as needed? Not smaller amounts of glucose, but smaller amounts Sorry, of insulin. insulin. <laughs> yeah. So insulin. people say that. Previously, um, they were having to check all the time and make all these mm. decisions, and it was a, lo- a lot of burden on them cognitively. But now it's kind of running in the background for them. So right. a lot of my, my I'm a I got a psychology background, and my research was looking what's the impact on people's quality of life. Yeah, and people said that when this is running in the background for them, it means a huge lift in that cognitive burden. We're not having to think as often about about that diabetes. We're not having to make as many decisions throughout the day. Right. And what are the, the consequences? I mean, whenever I hear implants, I always mm. think, oh, this is getting a bit more tricky in terms of our biology mm. and what we can and cannot put in the body. Are there any restrictions in, in terms of what, what's happening there? Can you keep them for a long time? You know, people have diabetes for the rest of their life, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. So yeah. it's not an implant in the sense that you need a need to go to the doctor and you need to have surgery. Right. That's not how it works. Okay. It's a, a very small sensor uh, that sits under the skin. Um, and um, so uh, the um, continuous glucose monitoring devices, depending, there are, there are different ones available, um, but we're just going to talk about the one that I use and I don't mm. need to mention the brand. I'm just going to talk yep. about the one yep. I use and that um, is meant to last for 10 days. So right. every 10 days, so it goes in, it's got this um, quite scary looking spring-loading device that actually isn't scary, in it, um, but it sounds and looks a bit scary yep. for people using it for the first time. Um, and it's there for 10 days and then it gets removed and you put another one in and that's right. all done by the user. Um, or in the case of really little kids, their parents or their carer might yeah. would do that for them. But, but only available or subsidised for type 1 diabetes. That's exactly moment. right. And, yes. and Rinza, I mean, so, I mean you're, you're one of Jasmine's supervisors. But you're you're a patient as well, which must bring a completely different view to the way in which she's done her PhD. She's done okay. I mean, she's, she's in my. <laughs> Can I just say? And look, as you know, it's going to sound like I'm you know leading the um, Jasmine Ship Fan Club, which I'm quite happy. To do, quite we'll get stickers printed. No, we'll get stickers printed though. Yeah. Um, the very idea that somebody doing a PhD specifically asks somebody with lived experience who's not mm. a clinician, not yep. a researcher, not a scientist to be part of her yeah. supervisor panel is remarkable. And it speaks so much to how Jasmine, um, the respect um, that she treats people with type 1 diabetes, who she is studying. And that was evident before she started yep. her PhD, but very, very evident throughout. Yep. Um, she is very uh, involved, I guess she's gotten to know a lot of people in um, uh, the open source diabetes world yeah. um, and 
is adored because of this, and she's gonna, probably going to hate me. I don't, I don't care because it's, yeah. all, it's all true. But you know, I mean, I would. You know, put that call out to people who are thinking about doing a PhD mm. where they're, um, you know, researching people living with a health condition. Put somebody with lived experience on your supervisor mm. panel because mm. we bring something really, really different. I'm not going to be able to sit there necessarily and critique, um, you know, the science behind it, but I certainly can talk with her about what that lived experience yeah. is and what that means in terms of the research. Yeah. So I learned about this whole project, this whole area, because I read Renza's blog, because Renza was right. using these open source systems. She's talked about how she had built this new technology for herself and she was figuring out some of the challenges but it was making such an impact on her mental health her quality of life and her glucose levels were more stable mm. throughout the day yeah. so that's I heard about this all because of people like Renza who are living with this condition and talking about talking about mm. their experiences online yeah. and then I've been really lucky enough to work throughout this project um, not just with Renza but many other people of type 1 who are uh, so people who are using this open source automated insulin delivery assistance you might say the looping because it's a closed loop system, what you call it in engineering. So I've worked yep. with lots yep. of loopers, we might call them, um, including I've been able to work on a paper with um, Dana Lewis, who's a woman who started this all. And that's right. been a really incredible experience over my PhD. Yeah, I, th I think we should point out too that this is something that I, I, I think is, you know, fairly unique in terms of universities actually allowing this as well. So, I mean, not all institutions, I suspect, would be favourable of having non-academic, you know, position supervisors. And I think, but making this case, um, and I assume you, ha you have academic supervisors as well yes, at Deakin, yeah. so it's not five like... Five supervisors. <laughs> yeah, good <laughs> Five? Yeah. You're a bit greedy. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, having, having that additional component is, is really crucial to making sure that yeah. it's valued because, I don't know... My thesis, I recently, you know, I had to block my cats from getting behind the fridge <laughs> and my thesis came in handy. <laughs> and I thought, you know, 20, 25 years later, I thought, I'm really glad I did this. I did, you know, this is really, but like making sure that PhD work is relevant to the patient cohort that you're working with sometimes can be really challenging. And I know there's a lot of PhD students out there who do a lot of surveys and interaction with with their patients and that's fabulous and that's core but having someone in the decision making position like yourself and so like that is that is completely different right i mean mm. you must have had did you ever sort of look at the chapter and go jasmine it's got to go <laughs> no but i will <laughs> just say that um you know, I live by the motto, nothing about us without us. Right. And, um, you know, that was in the very DNA of, of uh, Jasmine's uh, PhD. And, um, you know, what I really appreciated was the way that, um, you know, Jasmine really was very conscious of there being people behind this. This wasn't just numbers. This wasn't just people living with, di you know, it just wasn't about diabetes and, and managing mm. diabetes and looking at, you know, those horrible, you know, terms like non-compliant people and right. diabetes control and all of those things that make people with diabetes want to scream yeah, and run in a corner yeah. and cry. Um, but it was really about, you know, how is this impacting you living your life as a person who happens to have diabetes? Yeah. Um, and that was very much, the, you know, underpinning the work that she was doing. Well, one of the other things there I think is very interesting when you say this ideas like non-compliance and so forth, mm. is many people with diabetes also have other conditions as well. Of course. It's very common. And often the specialties don't interact as well as mm. they mm. need to. And so non-compliance sometimes, you know, it's, a, it's the wrong term because sometimes it's like, well, the other specialty gave me a different medication for that and that's now interacting with this. And, and you know, that can be really problematic and mm. sort of that crosstalk between, you know, various conditions can be, you know, like a severe drain on people's, you know, just their, their capabilities, their, their finances, their time, everything. 
I think, yeah, the language that we use when we speak about diabetes is really important. And it's a great language position statement out mm. by Diabetes Australia that you can find online. But yes, yeah, so a term like non-compliant is completely uninformative as well, because yep. it doesn't explain the reason why people yep. aren't doing what they're supposed to do. I'm putting quotation marks that someone might, some people might be struggling to afford the medications they need to use. That might be a reason why they're not following right. orders. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And um, let's go back to the technology, uh, yep. because essentially there are two pieces here. There's the measuring device that determines your glucose levels and there's the distribution device which provides the the insulin as needed to compensate you know in the body and we're talking about the sort of interaction between these two now and open source so what does this mean for you Renzo in terms of these technologies talking to them what did you have to do so uh, I also have the third part is my phone which is with me I'm in the studio (laughs) with a phone and I know that that's very naughty but it's a medical device because the algorithm that makes everything speak to each other is on an app on my phone so um, so that's what it is so in terms of the user uh, I had to um, build this app on my phone and that is something that anybody who's using it has to do for themselves. Um, right. All the information it is open source, all the information is out there step by step online um, and uh, the instructions are written for people like me. I am not the most technical person out there but it makes sense to me and there was a lot of work that I did beforehand where I spoke with a lot of people, um, I asked a lot of questions, I did a lot of reading um, because I genuinely was trying to find something, anything that would reduce the burden of day-to-day yeah. diabetes. Um, so can I ask yeah. just on that though, what does that mean for you when you interact with your healthcare professionals that you've mm-hmm. kind of taken this out of their space and you have control of that now? Like how does how does that go down when you talk to your yeah. doctors? I'm very selective about the doctors that I yep. see. Um, I have a wonderful endocrinologist mm-hmm. who very rudely decided that she's going to retire, which was not the deal <laughs> that we made. I know, not yeah. the deal we made. It's not okay. Um, uh, And I told her uh, before I was starting, but I wasn't, you know, there's sort of, I think a little bit of we ask for forgiveness, not permission, not Mm. that we need to be forgiven. But I spoke to her beforehand and said, I'm starting this. And she didn't know anything about it as, you know, I've been using this now for five and a half years. um, Mm. And most health professionals at at that point in time certainly wouldn't have even heard, or very few would have even heard about it. Um, And her comment to me was, I can't help you with that. I can't help you build it. I, I don't know. Um, but then which I saw is, which her. is good that she's just yeah. straight up told you. I yeah, mean, that's, absolutely. That's, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, she said there are risks. I'm like, I live with diabetes. There are risks every minute <laughs> yep. of the day. Um, but then I saw her three months afterwards and uh, she had obviously done, you know, we had done blood tests and so that measure, the HbA1c, that is that measure that people feel is like a grade, unfortunately, Um you know, if, if that was the only thing we were looking at, there would have been big ticks against that. But I said to her, I'm sleeping better. I feel better. I don't hate my diabetes as much. Mm. I have energy like I've never had before. Mm. My diabetes burden is the lowest it's ever been. Wow. And her response to me was, well, then how could I do anything other than support you? And mm. all that support was, was her saying, well, what is it that we need to talk about now? Because we certainly don't need to talk about your glucose levels, <laughs> which was great because we could talk about the things that were really important to me rather than trying to work yeah. out why my blood sugar was high every morning at three am and waking right. me up so right. yeah and do, do you ever feel for i mean i know it always comes back to money and distribution of money and, and time mm. but is there a particular reason why this version of diabetes management is not just being rushed out to everyone who could possibly utilize at the moment jasmine uh, there are commercial versions available now so 
when Dana first invented it, there was nothing on the market mm. that did this and there wasn't anything on the market for years and that's why people did it themselves. Yep. But now there are commercial companies who are building these devices and they're coming out, so commercial automated insulin delivery systems. And there's three in Australia now, yep. I think. Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, but the, the it's not universally accessible and it's not universally affordable. So that's right. why people are still choosing to build their own systems. And um, But I am hopeful that we will see more commercial systems available because that yep. gives people choice. Uh, healthcare professionals up to date, do you think, with these commercial op- opportunities that are there now? Or is this still sort of so new that you know patients need to advocate a bit for themselves? Uh, I think it differs. I mean, some of my research, one of the challenges people spoke about when they were building these systems for themselves was that doctors didn't know didn't know much about this. Yeah. And there's been a lot of education out there. There's great international guidelines on these open source systems and the commercial systems now, people are starting to learn about them. And I think it is hard. There's so much mm. for healthcare professionals oh, yeah, to know and there's yeah. so much new technology. It's a lot to keep abreast of. But yeah. I think it is something that people are becoming more aware of. Renzo, what's, um, you know, you, you mentioned your quality of life has, has changed. I mean, yeah. how, how much of a burden is your type 1 diabetes now relative to, what, six years ago? Yeah, it was... It was really very... Um, I realised straight away how different using this tech is. Now it's it's very normal for me because yeah. I've been using it for this long. Um, but it was very noticeable. I remember being at a conference and hearing somebody who... Um, a person with diabetes who was also using this and he said he had worked it out that he got back an hour of his day. Wow. And, yeah. and I thought that it was really great that somebody had sort of tried to measure it. And when I thought about it, they're right. And it's not like, oh, great, now I have between 3 and 4 p.m. Now I don't have <laughs> diabetes. It's a minute here. It's a minute there. But it's, it's a day a week. Yeah. It, like, yeah. like an hour a day by seven, it, seven hours it, a day. It adds up. It adds up, and, right. and I remember saying this to my endocrinologist, and she said, I hope you're using this time wisely. Um, <laughs> have you learned another language? And I'm like, I've done nothing. I've, wait, I've it just squandered like it. Blissful <laughs> headspace to me. That's, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. It was my head was not caught up in diabetes because this system does so much for me. And not only does it do so much for me, it's way smarter than me. It doesn't make mistakes. It doesn't. I mean, the, the times where there is an error um, in the system, it's not actually the system that's making the error. It's me going, oh, I don't believe you. I'm overriding you. Right. And, and I've learned not to do that. It took me a while um, to realize that. But it is way, way smarter than yeah. I am. And it doesn't have, you know, it doesn't get tired. It doesn't get emotional. It doesn't get mm. stressed because of work. It just goes and does its thing. And when I leave it alone, it, yeah. it operates very well. I, I mean, it's interesting at the moment, like I, I do a few different jobs. Uh, you know, I run a kids cancer charity. I do a lot of consulting. I do the show. I do a few things. And there's a lot on, right? But I don't have a personal health burden to manage. And I, I see, I know a lot of people who do. And I, and I think, what is it, like a day, two days a week that you just your mental energy goes into managing your health burden? And we don't talk about that as much as, you know, the physical attributes of things. Mm. We don't talk about that sort of mental burden. And Jasmine, you're a you know, psychology background, so you have a much better understanding of this than me. But that's got to that's age you and weigh on you and, and lead to, you know, there's that term, non-compliance or whatever. You know, that's got to play a huge role in people's lives, right? Yeah. So there's this term called diabetes burnout where people get mm. so stressed from this constant managing that it, yep. they just 
not give up, but they just collapse. I guess like it's just tired of dealing with it all the time. And I'm really lucky to have done my PhD partly based at the Australian Centre for Behavioural Research and Mm -hmm. Diabetes. There's a whole research centre dedicated to the psychological, social aspects of living with a condition like this and what it means day to day. And my PhD project, because we're interested in what was this new technology, how was it impacting people's lives? We did interviews with people in Australia. We heard people talking about same quote an hour every day of my life back Mm. or people saying, I used to wake up five times a night because I was having, I was going light, yeah. high and low overnight and now I can yeah. sleep through the night for the first time in decades. Wow. And then we did a worldwide survey where we looked at uh, these patient reported, out, people reported outcome measures where we're measuring these outcomes of questionnaires and we compared them with a group of people who were looping to a group of people who weren't and we found they were doing a lot better on all these different types of measures. Yeah, oh look, it's great stuff and we could we could talk about this. Uh, <laughs> we do have another guest waiting in the green room so, you know, she'll get angry because uh, you know, she's been on the show before and she loves it. Um, and we're going to talk about frogs. So unleash exciting. the frogs. Amazing. Unleash the frogs, the, the army of frogs. I mean, but look, it is, it, Renza and Jasmine, it is brilliant to have the two of you, both extraordinarily good communicators of science out there, you know, talking about this because I think a lot of, you know, Chris Gappy and I both, um, family members oh. have diabetes mm. and, you know, we don't know much about this and it's not being, not being talked about as much as, as it would um, be appropriate to happen. And I think removing that burden um, that people feel that is unnecessary, you know, current technologies that's the sad part unnecessary um would be great so i'm very glad that a year ago jasmine (laughs) out of the huge pile of applicants Mm. for the 20 and 20 program yours somehow floated to the top and i mean that in a good way (laughs) how it sounds um but uh you know great to have you back on the show congratulations on submitting your phd Thank you so much. So, uh, Dr. Jasmine, you know, we, we just, we can say that. Get used to it. Get used <laughs> to it. Try it on. Yes. Um, whoever you bank with, go and get that credit card changed <laughs> immediately. Yeah. That's the best part. And look, I, I see, you know, you have an amazing future ahead of you. So congratulations and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back. And Renza, um, you, you're going to have to get yourself another PhD student now to be involved with <laughs> oh. Jasmine's moving on. Look, I don't think that anyone could top Jazz or Dr. Oh. Jasmine. I was very, very happy to be involved with that. I'll just keep going and living my life with diabetes now. <laughs> yeah, no, great stuff. And look, thanks so much for coming in today. Thank it's you. good to hear the patient experience and especially when it's one that's atypical, I think, um, where you've had to take on a lot of the control of your condition on your own, which is, um, you know, well done, and I hope it keeps working perfectly for a Thank long you. time to come. <laughs> Folks, we're going to take a short break for some important station announcements, and we'll be back with more on Stone Go in just a moment. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Welcome back, people. You are listening to Triple R. This is a science show. If you've accidentally sort of tuned in. What a happy accident. (laughs) Stick with us. Uh, We've only got about 18 minutes to go. But in the studio with us now is Michaela Davidson, a PhD candidate from the University of Melbourne. Welcome back. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, you must have done okay last time. Oh, I, I must have. <laughs> no, you, you you did. And you work in an area that I think, uh, I can't speak for Chris because he doesn't have many interests, but for me, <laughs> frogs are super interesting because they are, they are the little canaries in the coal mine for the world, aren't they, at the moment? Yeah, they absolutely are. And, you know, I think I'm a bit biased, but I love frogs and yeah. I think everyone else should also love frogs. Yeah. Now, I have this vague recollection. You, you work with these, because I always thought you were going to bring in something cane toad size, like some massive thing. But you work with these little, wee little frogs, don't you? Yeah, they're so small. They're about the size of a 20 cent piece. I mean, blink and you'll almost miss them. And whereabouts do we find them? So we find them uh, only in captivity at the moment, unfortunately. But 
historically, you should have found them across the um, Kosciuszko Mountain range. Right. And is there a particular reason why they're not there anymore? Or is it just humans in general? Is it changing temperature, climate, but what's the cause? Do we know? Yes, I should mention that it's the southern crabberry frog we're talking <laughs> yeah, about. Cause you, you, the only, just any old little frog. Yeah. <laughs> the only one who mentions the cane toads, and that's absolutely not no, what I want to no. be studying. Um, so yeah, the southern crabberry frog. Um, and so unfortunately, they are functionally extinct in the wild, right. and that is due to a horrible, horrible fungus right. called the uh-huh. amphibian chytrid fungus. Mm. And it is here in Australia because of our lovely selves, humans, yep. when it was introduced and spread. But it originated in Asia and has moved all across the world, found on all continents except Antarctica because frogs aren't in Antarctica. Oh, wow. And in terms of this fungus, like what what is the sort of outcome overall for frogs across Australia? Like is this one frog being particularly susceptible or all our frogs in danger? Where are we sitting? Yes, yeah, so something really amazing and super interesting about this fungus is how it affects frogs differently. And frogs within, you know, the same species or between populations and within those populations. So it's... It affects all frogs, but affects them differently. Okay. So it can um, it's ubiquitous in how it can infect frogs, but the response in different frogs is completely different. So okay. for, unfortunately for the southern crabberry frog, it is extremely fatal. They are highly susceptible to the fungus, but for some other frogs out there, they seem to be tolerant of the fungus and okay. they can live with it and it doesn't really do too much to them. Wow, that's interesting. And is the plan to uh, sort of reintroduce these particular frogs now back to the Kosciuszko Mountain region? Is that uh, the hope? Yeah, definitely. So it's already actually happening. So there's some amazing work being done by the zoos, so Zoos Victoria and Taronga Zoo, and they are introducing these frogs back into the wild. But unfortunately, while the fungus is still present, it's very hard for these frogs to survive. So that's what I'm trying to kind of do. And I want to see if we can control their evolution to make these frogs more resistant to the fungus. Right. So is that... uh a sort of selective breeding or exactly. genetic modification? Like, I mean, we, humans have been doing selective breeding for a while, right? They have, literally yeah. since we started living, I guess, yeah, we yeah. have been controlling evolution. And we haven't just been controlling in animals, we've been controlling in plants, yep. you know. Things we eat. <laughs> everything, we, everything that kind of makes our life a little bit mm. better, we've been trying to control it. As yeah. we do. I, I think I read once that capskins once upon a time are very, very poisonous to us. Or Deadly nightshade family. Yeah. yeah. Tomatoes too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we, we sort of just farmed and farmed and farmed. Yes. So we yeah. got one that didn't kill a local. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had deer and survived. Plant more of that. Yeah, plant more of that one. That's a good capsicum. Yeah. yeah, agriculture is one of the best examples of selective breeding or artificial selection. You know, it's the same yeah. thing we're talking about here. You know, there was a plant species. I'm not a, I'm not a plant person, so apologies if I say this wrong, but a brassica species. Yep. And just through breeding, we've now got six different vegetables from it. We've got kale, cabbage, uh, I wrote these down because I you know, don't forget the plants, kale, cabbage, cauliflower, broccoli, kohlrabi, and even Brussels sprouts from one species just by choosing to breed them for specific parts of the plant. I told you, Thanks. Brussels sprout is a baby cabbage. <laughs> really? Well, yeah. congratulations to whoever did the, um, the what was the third one? Uh, I'm thinking, see, my brain is, kale. I'm not eating, <laughs> no. I was going to say, really? <laughs> cauliflower? Uh, cauliflower, you know, cauliflower and, you know, yeah. There's a few, there's some nice stuff there. Yeah, so yeah. just by choosing, you know, whether we bred for bigger stems, shorter stems, bigger flowers, bigger leaves, we're able to just continuously select and continuously breed for different vegetables. Yeah, and how many apples have we got out there at the moment? Exactly, and that is all through selective breeding or 
artificial selection. So yeah. we've been able to do so much, even cows. You know, 100 years ago, a cow would produce around two litres of milk a day. Right. Now we've got cows producing 40 litres of milk per day. And all we've done by that is breed cows, which produce more milk with and continuously did that for a cumulative effect yep. for more milk. We've done it with horses, for faster race horses. We've done it with dogs. You know, dogs originated from wolves and now we've got hairless dogs, fluffy yeah. dogs, tall dogs, short dogs. Chris and I have been thinking about breeding a race of, um, of radio presenters. But we're with deep voices. Yeah, we, probably should, we probably shouldn't have started with cabbages, though. That is, <laughs> yeah, it's not working out. I'm, I'm interested. So let's, let's assume, because like, I'm going to assume, that your work is going to work. Oh, okay. I really hope so. Well, yeah, I'm, just, I'm, I'm going with this. It's, I'm hugely confident. So you've got a batch probably not the corrective collective term a population for, thank you <laughs> population of frogs um, that you're going to reintroduce into their uh, a natural habitat and let's assume as well that this fungus because it is so insidious and so um uh sort of after tough um will still be there yeah beyond the fact that the frogs are going to be immune or be able to tackle it in some way will they be different in any other way yeah, I mean, it's definitely possible we're not there yet. This is, at the moment, a concept that we're working on. First, to be able to do this, we need to identify the frogs that can survive with mm, this sure. fungus. Yeah. This is this is step one, and this is where we're at. But we obviously need a long-term goal, and that long-term goal is to have these animals, and not just frogs, this can be applied to other things for conservation breeding. You know, we're in the Anthropocene now. Yeah. All we're doing now is having more animals under threat from things, disease, you know, habitat things, and we're bringing them into captivity for conservation breeding. Uh, for captive breeding, but then they're held in captivity and we need to find something to, you know, we need to find a way to get them back out in the environment. Mm -hmm. So by applying this um, selective breeding on animals, it can work as a proof of concept if, if we can do this, you know. We started with one frog species in captivity in Australia. I think we're now up to about six different species of frogs that are held within these captive breeding programs. Right. So could we apply this and see if we can get it to work to then have these frogs in the wild? It's not saying we don't, you know, we know with there will be consequences, but we're at this situation now where they're not in the wild yeah, and we all. need yeah. to do something, yeah. whether that is, mm. you know, selective breeding or genetic modification. We don't have any other choice except for either let them go extinct or hold them in captivity forever. So a question for you, because I'm always a huge fan of nature being smarter than us. Yep. I think it goes about saying in almost every regard, with the exception of PCs. Maybe. Maybe. Um, <laughs> Is there, is there any reason why you couldn't... Like, you can breed these things up in significant numbers, presumably, why you wouldn't just start releasing them and hope that sooner or later, genetically, some of them will just have something slightly different. Evolve some tolerance mm -hmm. on their yeah, own. And, yeah. they, and they will evolve it on their own. Yeah, so we're seeing that in some frog species. You know, some species are already doing that. You know, right. the fungus has been around now for yep. a couple of decades. Some species are already evolving tolerance right. or So they have resistance. the population, though, presumably, to exactly. do it. Exactly. Yeah. But they've got different things about their life that is allowing them to do this. Right. The thing with the corroboree frog, it is a very, it's a long-lived species. They live ah. into about 20 years. But wow. They don't yeah. reach. I thought they were like three weeks. Yeah, right. no, they're oh, no, I feel like wow, I should, twenty like years. Yeah, you have to, you have yep. to name them then, right? Well, they get driver's licenses. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> <couple of years>. anyway. <laughs> but the even worse thing about it is they're not reaching sexual maturity till they're about four to six years old. So that okay. means they have oh, to survive wow. for a really long time before right. they can breed. So they're a slow breeding and slow growing frog. So for some frogs that can breed, you know, within six months yep. of being born, their population, yeah. they're having a huge turnover yeah. in populations yeah. and yeah. they can almost like outbreed what's happening. The crabberry frog can't do that. Um, yeah. And so now... We're needing to intervene into this to try and have some sort of, you know, self-sustaining population. But yeah. 
you know, raising the point of that the fungus might keep evolving and keep changing, yeah. it's definitely is a worry and you know it's a concern that could happen but if we don't give it a go how will we know yeah yeah absolutely now last time we were on i think we we started talking very briefly about uh the interaction between frogs and tarantulas which i just do not like that idea at all uh not we're gonna we're not gonna go there uh but (laughs) no i brought you a happier happier story this time frogs and cows have we got the frogs riding on cows there are frogs riding on cows excellent excellent so what's happening i freaked you out a little bit last time with the spider story. Oh, yeah, so yeah. this time, cows. So cows. yeah, there's been a population, there's a little bit old, older of a story, but there has frogs that have developed a mutualistic relationship with water buffalo in Turkey. And these <laughs> frogs are actually <laughs> literally riding these cows to eat the flies that are attracted to the smelly cows off the off the cow. So the cow loses its flies and the frogs get a nice meal. And you literally just see, yeah, 50, 20 frogs riding around on these water buffalo. Water buffalo. Are they doing I mean, some of them presumably are doing it just for transport. They just might be. <laughs> like and, Uber for frogs. Well, and so, yeah. You know, usually when you see these sort of what they would call symbiotic sort of scenarios setting up, there's something in it for both organisms. Yeah. Uh, so are the buffalo normally, uh, do they have problems with the flies and so forth? So flies can cause a problem called myiasis, which is right. a fly strike. So they absolutely cause problems to cows. We see it in agriculture as well, yep. um, in sheep and things. So by having those frogs there that are getting a nice, freezy, uh, easy, free meal, it yeah. is causing or preventing these diseases that um, flies can breed. Yeah. So is this a recent occurrence or just a recent discovery? Do we think these- this was a recent discovery right. for me? I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't, and I don't know if it's been discovered anywhere else. And I just came across it by accident on Twitter and was like, that is just, there's frogs riding around on cows. How cool is that? Yeah, it's wild. It's <laughs> really interesting for, for like, uh, population genetics too of the, of the frogs because mm. they're moving in, that's a big distance cows yeah, the water buffalo can move around in quite a large distance and I don't as long know as if they're enough, free yeah. roaming or not either yeah, well, but if oh, they who are. knows yeah wow that's, how that's do the I mean I, you know this is the physics me and you know I understand you know on the moon the gravity is one sixth right but here on earth water buffaloes are big uh-huh. Do they do they jump on when they're laying down for rest time, or are they just hop at the well, like, like, climb up a leg? How does, yeah, how does that work? I mean, I definitely think we need to find out who did this research yeah. and, and talk to them because it is it is fascinating. Yeah, because it seems like um, you know they're pretty high up. I'm not sure frogs don't normally exist some, high. Some frogs do. Some do frogs live really high up in the canopy, especially right, in the rainforest. Okay, the rainforest You're getting yeah. frogs, you know, the, like crabbery frogs don't climb; they don't jump. They're only found yep. on the ground. You get yep. frogs that live within that, you know, one to two meter space. But some species live five. Six ten meters high up in the canopy, like the flying tree frog in Vietnam that climbs all a the way to the top. Flying tree frog. Flying tree frog literally has like legs that glide, kind of like a bat, and they fly between the trees. Do we See, have, frogs are awesome. Oh, they're wild. Do we have? That's why we got you back. <laughs> Do we have any feel? Like whenever I talk to an entomologist or whatever, they give me an idea of numbers of you know how much of the percentage of the Earth's blah 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 we've mm-hmm. discovered. Do we have any feel in terms of frogs of what our knowledge base is? Like, are we kind of do are we discovering new frogs every other day or is it um, not every other day but definitely every now and then there was I think it was about six or eight months ago there was a new frog species in Australia that was discovered um, and definitely in the tropical areas and the rainforest obviously places that are harder to get to harder to find harder to live in and be in to find things Um, but we definitely are finding new frogs yeah as well pretty often and just I mean just to sort of 
I guess, cement that, that idea of the importance of frogs. I mean, what do frogs do in the environment for us? Like, what is their role in the biosphere? Yeah, so their bioindicators is kind of their main thing that they do and why we think that they're so important in the environment. They're normally the first to react to changes because they're so sensitive, because of the way that they absorb water and breathe through their skin. So if there's changes like pollutants or temperature changes, they're normally the first to react, but also things like they are both predator and prey. So in the food chain, so they're Mm. really good at indicating whether an ecosystem is healthy or not. Yeah. And how far up that chain do they normally sit? Like, are they a fair way up? Or is it I variable? mean, most of them eat ants and insects, so right, I wouldn't so they're say they're, they're, they're yeah. too, too high up. Yeah. They're not the smartest of creatures. It's okay, Shane. You're safe from the frogs. Yeah, you are yeah, definitely well, safe man. from the frogs. <laughs> frogs mo- nearly all frogs, there's only a couple of frog species that have teeth as well, so even, even if they get you, they're not going to get you too bad. <laughs> frogs with teeth. That's a, that's a that's movie. Image, yeah. That could be a movie. Yeah, that could be a movie. Frognado. <laughs> Yeah, frog yeah. You heard it. I promise you, you are safe from the frogs. <laughs> I love that. And um, in terms of uh, Australia, like how how are we doing in terms of frog conservation? I mean, I, I, I'm hearing some great stories about some of our zoos, which I think you know it, it, it fascinates me that especially zoos Victoria are doing An so many conservation job. work. Um, I remember being. When I first started the show, probably anti most zoos, and you know it was pretty strong in that belief. And as I got to know more and more over recent years as to what they were doing, especially at Zoos Victoria, I was like, oh, actually, you know, they're they're putting a lot of effort into conservation now in you know the Lord House, Dick Insect, mm. etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, some really great stories there. Um, but how are we doing overall in Australia relative to the world? Oh, look, I think we could always be doing better. Mm. So that's always the, the thing, isn't it? You know, most of these problems that are these animals, you know, not just frogs are having are human from humans. Yep. Yep. So we can always be doing better. But overall, I don't want to say we're doing great because we still do yeah. have frogs that are dying. We have the fungus. We have, you know, you know, environments being cleared. We have temperature changes because mm. we're not doing enough for climate change, you know. So I don't want to say we're doing great, but, you know, because of the likes of Zoos Victoria and Taronga Zoo and other zoos across Australia, I think we're doing better than, you know, what we were 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, well, I think the fact that you have, I guess, they're called arc populations mm. yeah. of some of these frogs is spectacular. And presumably there's there's no threat to the arc populations. They're good to, you can maintain them indefinitely. Is that Yeah, absolutely. Deal? So, you know, if animals are brought in from the wild to establish these populations, yep. you know, go through quarantine to make sure they're disease free so we don't have disease introduced into these and they're under strict biosecurity there but you know I guess the 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 issue we might have or come upon is age. You know, yeah, we hold right. these here and we hold them in captivity, but we need to do something about that. So hopefully there will be more research done onto these um, diseases that are affecting them, um, you know, not just frogs, and also more money and investment into research so yeah. that we can try and find some solutions yeah. to get them back in the wild. A little a little wish for me, if you could, I think this would be great for international tourism, um, if you could get these little frogs to ride Tasmanian devils. Um, now that's like, something. Like the turkey stuff with the, the cows, that'd be cool. A little Tazzy Devil running around, a couple of frogs the frog on it. <laughs> That'd be wild, wouldn't it? Uh, I don't think I'll ever get permission to do that, but, you know, it's, just, it's a thought. <laughs> you know, you're very polite in your response there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very polite. Yeah, yeah, yeah Disproportionately so. <laughs> <laughs> Michaela Davidson, it's been great having you on the show again. Thanks so much for coming in and giving us an update on what's going on in the frog world. Uh, when's your PhD you? Oh, I don't want to think about it. Ah, don't worry about that. Um, <laughs> you never ask someone that. Should. I always ask people that. But, you know, if they say it'll happen before we land on Mars, I'm usually pretty happy. It'll, so. it'll happen before those frogs running around on Tasmanian devils. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
nice. Perfect answer. Folks, uh, Michaela Davidson is from the University of Melbourne talking about frogs. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me on again. Chris KP, we're out of time, pal. Uh, we're going to have to goes too end fast. the show. It goes too fast. A huge thank you to all our guests today and to Gracie from Texas for beaming in from uh, the US. Uh, sorry, we didn't get time for your news, Chris. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, everyone, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> You'll work I don't it know out. what you were talking about. <laughs> uh, folks, thanks so much for tuning in to Einstein and Go-Go for an hour. It has been our pleasure communicating some science with you. Next week, we have our eighth 20 PhDs in 20 minutes program. It's going to be wild. I'll be popping some uh, naproxen or something before I do that show because I always end up with a headache. Um, it's fast-paced. A lot of PhD students all in the studio um, one after another, so it'll be gold. So tune in. But until then, We'll say goodbye. Remember, science is everywhere and have a fantastic weekend. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Go-Go's Twitter account or Facebook page. 